All right, good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. So glad to be with you this morning. Welcome to Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ to church. For those who aren't here yet, I'm Pastor Andrew, and I'm glad you're here now. Joining us on site, joining us perhaps online this morning, maybe you're in the East Auditorium as well. Thanks for being part of Christ Church. You're a meaningful part of our worshiping community. So thanks for tuning in and being here today. As a church body, we are in a unique season right now, a particularly important season. We sometimes refer to it in the Christian church as Lent. Lent is this season for Christians literally around the world that has been handed down. This practice is, is centuries old, where the entire Christian church turns its attention to the upcoming celebration of Easter. This is a season where we as Christian people once again revisit the stories and begin to recenter our hearts on the centrality of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lent are these weeks leading up to once again treading the way of the cross and in seeing the crucifixion, laying Jesus in the tomb, and then once again, of course, celebrating, singing and song and dance and joy, Easter celebration, Easter Sunday. So Lent is tremendously important for the Christian church these weeks, this season, leading up to Easter Sunday. To guide us through that, we want to have a special measure of devotion or spiritual sacrifice. This is why sometimes you find people who do a lot of praying during Lent. Maybe you're praying every day as an example, or maybe you're reading your Bible every day. If you've never done that before, this is a great time to start doing that. Try just reading a couple verses every single day. Maybe you're in a small group. We've got Easter small groups that are running here at Christ Church, and you're gathering together, and you're getting to know one another and spending time talking about the sermon and so forth. And hopefully that is enriching and encouraging you in your spiritual life and in your spiritual disciplines during this important season. The other thing that I want to highlight always is that Lent usually has an emphasis on the person of Jesus. Appropriately so. It just kind of seems to make sense and go together. It's a chance for us as a church, though, to really dial in and better understand Jesus, his person, his personality, looking at his parables, his teachings, what he did, to really focus on Jesus. To help us locally as Christ Church do that, we've been taking this time to look at a variety of dinner stories. Stories where Jesus gets together with men and women and he breaks bread. Jesus hung out with normal people like us and he had to eat. And so he used the opportunities of eating with people to teach and preach and give us parables and things we can learn about. And sometimes events unfolded during a meal. Things would happen in people's lives as they got close to Jesus, even over a meal. So we've got these series of dinner stories or vignettes. This morning, we're looking at our third dinner story. It is sometimes referred to or sometimes will be titled in your Bible. The editors of a Bible will sometimes put a little heading over a section of the Bible. And this one is Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. It comes to us out of one of the Gospels. Just a reminder for you, a Gospel is a first-hand eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what a Gospel is. And there are four of them in the Bible. One of them is called the Gospel of Luke, and that's where we're going to be taking this particular story from. It comes to us in Luke chapter 7. Chapter 7 means that things have been happening. There's, there's, there's a, a movement that's begun to take place. 
Jesus has garnered together a, a, a variety of followers, disciples, people who are intrigued by him. He's performing some miracles. He's doing a lot of teaching and preaching in Jewish synagogues or places of worship. And, and he's really getting a reputation out there by chapter 7. But with that reputation also comes some tension. For as much as Jesus is gathering some followers, he's also gathering some enemies or people who don't like what he's doing and have a problem with this itinerant Jesus preacher running around preaching and teaching. That specifically has to do with the Pharisees, Sadducees, or the Sanhedrin. That's a fancy titles that are used in the Bible to describe the religious elite of the day. The religious elite of the day had a lot of friction with Jesus, and we're trying to better understand him, and sometimes even trap him in verbal arguments and so forth. And we're going to find the same thing happening in this story as we have one of the Pharisees. In fact, it's precisely one of the Pharisees that asks Jesus over for dinner. Here's the story for you, Luke 7, starting at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. He would have probably reclined on a low, um, low and long table uh, type of reclining couch. That would have been normal in that culture and day. And so they're reclining down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he, that is Jesus, was eating there, she gets up and she brings a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him, that is Jesus, at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, this would have been a radically, uh, radical gesture of love, affection, intimacy, vulnerability, but it also would have been a big cultural no-no. This is, this is an act of impropriety. As a woman comes bursting on the scene and all of a sudden letting down her hair, she falls at Jesus' feet and starts interacting with him in a very personal and very intimate and yet public way that would have not have been culturally received well, and specifically not by the Sanhedrin, not by the Pharisees or the religious elite of the day, which is precisely what we see happen. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, that word sinner is a rather loaded word. And if you had a chance to be with us last week, it's really important that we have a baseline understanding of how that word is used in the Bible. It's true that the word sin is used even outside of the Christian context or a Jewish context. It's used in the secular world. But for the sake of our conversations and for the way in which we understand it within a Christian tradition, the word sin is very important and yet also complex. We need to wrap our minds around the similar definition. It is transliterated. Sin is literally means to miss the mark. 
The imagery that is used is that of a bow and an arrow where you are shooting towards a target and the aspiration is that you hit the center of the target, what you're aiming for. Sin is when you miss the mark. It's when you have something that happens within you, your person, your circumstances that pulls you away from that center goal and you get off the mark. The way this theologically plays out is in the reality of failures or mistakes that we have. The way that this theologically plays out is even to the complexity of, of contributing to the world missing the mark. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world, there's a lot of messiness. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of ways in which I can look at the world and say we've missed the mark on what's possible, what could be, what perhaps even should be. In the case that we find here with the Pharisee, there's an added layer here of Jewish expectation. You see, in the Jewish tradition and in the Jewish way of life, sin was when you missed the mark related to God and God's expectations, what God wanted for the Jewish people. To say that this woman is a sinner is to say that she, this immoral woman, has missed the mark and made mistakes and failures in relation to the Jewish law, the Jewish customs, and was, for all intents and purposes, no longer considered a faithful Jewish person. Therefore, he leverages this word choice, saying that she is a sinner. But also notice this. He makes an assumption, perhaps even more so an assertion, related to Jesus. He says, if this man were a prophet, and a prophet is a fancy way of saying someone who speaks for God, who knows God, who is close to God, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know and understand that this woman has been unfaithful, has missed the mark related to God. That this woman, because of her decisions and her life and the world, that this woman's a sinner. And therefore, from the Pharisee's perspective, Jesus should have nothing to do with her. That's the internal processing that's taking place with our Pharisee. This is the moment of the story where Jesus speaks up. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. I can't help but think this is like a busted kind of moment. You know what I mean? Like Jesus got a little smirk going on here. Maybe that's just me reading into the text, but... Jesus seems to be calling him out a little bit here. Simon's response, go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story, a parable, an illustration, a story that conveys a much deeper meaning. A man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. 
Then he turned to the woman, looking at the woman, and he speaks to Simon. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. Simon's assertion was that Jesus did not know this woman and did not know or understand the situation at hand. If he did, he wouldn't let her do what she was doing. But here, here we find Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Jesus knows exactly the situation that is unraveling in which he is a part of. Jesus knows the woman. He knows her. He knows the reason for her tears. He knows the weight of her pain. He knows the significant challenges, difficulties, uh, the stuff that she's had to wade through in her life. He knows the reason that she's there and the reason why she expresses herself in such radical love and, and incredible gifts that she pours out. He knows why. He knows her and her story, her highs and her lows, and he knows why she is there. Jesus knows her completely and fully, and he knows that, yes, she even has missed the mark in life and made mistakes and has failures and pain and sin that is a part of her life. Yes, Jesus knows her. He also knows Simon. Did you notice that in the story, we actually, as the readers, don't know Simon's name until Jesus gives it to us. Jesus knows Simon, knows his name, knows who he is. Jesus even knows his internal dialogue. Jesus knows the thoughts of Simon. Jesus knows the training, the dispositions, the expectations that Simon has in this moment in time. Jesus even knows the brokenness and the sin that has crept its way into Simon's life, the self-righteousness, the arrogance, and the pride that is poisoning Simon 
and thereby poisoning this world at large. Yes, make no mistake, Jesus knows exactly what's going on here. He knows exactly who the woman is as a sinner, and he knows exactly who this host is, this Pharisee, this Simon is, and all the baggage and the brokenness and the pain that both of them bear in their lives. Jesus knows. And in the same way, he knows you. Jesus knows your name. Jesus knows your story. He knows your challenges and your difficulties, the, the problems that you've faced and are currently still facing. He knows the happy moments and the joyous things that have been a part of your life and your story, the moments where you are on the mountaintop. He knows the celebrations that have taken place in your life. He knows. He knows your internal dialogue. He knows the reasons for the tears that have been shed in your life. He knows you. And he knows the reality of sin in your life and in my life too. The ways in which we have both contributed to it as perpetrators of sin and brokenness in this world and the ways in which we have suffered from it as victims of sin and brokenness in this world. Jesus knows completely and fully. He even knows that you put gum on the teacher's chair in fifth grade. He knows about the bachelorette party in Vegas. He knows about that. And guys, you're not exempt. He knows about the bachelor party at the lake house with the eyes. There was a urologist there and things got really weird and you were sworn to secrecy about it. Some of you are like, that is oddly specific. No comment. But he knows you and your story, your complexity, your sin. He knows you. And the question becomes for us as people, as we read this story, what is Jesus going to do about it? You see, we're okay with the idea of being known a little bit by God. Like, it's cool that he knows my name, and that makes me feel fuzzy inside. But the reality that Jesus, God, knows the other aspects and the other parts of my life that I don't like to deal with, I don't like to talk about, I don't even know how to deal with that stuff. That he knows that too? Yes. Yes, you are fully and completely known. And that makes us nervous to stand before God like the woman in complete vulnerability, impropriety, and openness as we are and wonder, what is God going to do with me? Me and my story. Me and my sin. 
the answer comes in the text. I tell you, her sins, her brokenness, her pain, her suffering, her challenges, the ways in which she has contributed to the sin and the brokenness and the challenges of this world as a whole, the ways in which she has suffered from that, her sins, and they are many, they are great, they are overwhelming, they have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, he now shifts his gaze and he talks directly, specifically, intentionally to the woman sitting there wondering, waiting, anticipating, what is Jesus going to do? Is this really true? Do you really forgive me? And in this moment, Jesus does what only Jesus can do without a shadow of the doubt, bringing complete, total, and utter forgiveness for her, proclaimed into her, over her, and completely, all-consuming way. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sin? And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What does God do in the face of sin, my sin, your sin? He forgives it. He forgives you. Even as you are fully known, you are fully loved. And you are fully forgiven. A number of years ago, you invited me, you called me to be your pastor. And as par part of my office, one of my duties is to discharge. Perhaps the most important part of my duty as a pastor is to discharge that duty of giving you forgiveness. It is not merely telling you about forgiveness. It is not really telling you about Jesus. Uh, if, if I simply or merely teach you about Jesus, I have failed you. No, what you asked me, what you called me to do, what you have empowered me to do is to give you Jesus, to give you the full forgiveness that he won and accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection. You have called me as your pastor to declare to you the same forgiveness that has been spoken over his disciples throughout the ages that you might know without a shadow of a doubt. You are fully loved, and you are fully completely 
forgiven. And in doing so, you will be changed. You will be transformed. There will be things that happen inside of you as you recognize and receive by faith the gift of God's forgiveness. You'll be moved then. You'll be empowered then. You'll be equipped to share that forgiveness out in the world. You're going to start loving people and doing things that, that, that the world might be considering impropriety. You might be giving yourself to others in such a loving incredible and generous way that it reminds you of the woman. Because that's what happens when God's grace takes root in your life and you realize you are genuinely, completely, totally, utterly forgiven. And that through that forgiveness you have hope, you have resurrection, and you have life. You have peace with God and peace that you can bring into the lives of other people. And it begins with a word of forgiveness. Even as I now give you a word of forgiveness, you as God's people are called to bring that word, that Jesus, into the lives of other sinners like us. That they too might hear Jesus look at them and say, your sins are forgiven. One of the ways the Christian church has historically embodied this practice, this is through an old classic practice referred to as a confession and absolution. It's something that we do regularly at the 8 o'clock service, and it's a chance for us to embrace it here and now. The idea behind a confession and absolution is where we recognize and name our stories, we name our sin. We recognize that sometimes we are that woman with the baggage and the immorality and the pain, and that at other times we are Simon the Pharisee with our pride and with our arrogance. Regardless, we bear forward our sin and our shame confessing it to God and waiting for a brother or sister, in this case a pastor, to proclaim to us a definitive word of forgiveness to actually give us forgiveness to have Jesus forgive us. I seek to take you through the gift of confession and absolution this morning that you might know without a shadow of the doubt that you are loved and you are forgiven. Please join me in this sacred act. Center your hearts, clear your minds as we exercise what the Bible refers to as the keys to the kingdom. We're about to set some captives free, people. Here we go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit this day, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. This we humbly ask and pray 
Amen. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. And he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please join me in a silent moment of reflection and confession. Most merciful God, hear the words spoken and unspoken within your people. We confess to you, God, that we are in bondage to sin. We cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and in deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, O God. Renew us and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us and for our sake and forgives us all of our sins. Hear now a declared word. As a called and ordained minister in the church of Jesus Christ, with his voice and by his authority, I declare unto you the entire forgiveness of all of your sins. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, you are fully known, fully loved, you are fully forgiven because of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. May you experience by faith his peace. Amen.